Welcome to Skip the Queue, a podcast for people working in or working with visitor attractions. I'm your host, Kelly Molson. Each episode, I speak with industry experts from the attractions world. In today's episode, I speak with Kate Nichols, CEO of UK Hospitality and the co-chair of the London Tourism Recovery Board. Kate answers your burning questions on how to attract and maintain talent in the current challenging climate. If you like what you hear, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify and all the usual channels by searching Skip the Queue. Kate, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I know how incredibly busy you are, so I'm very grateful. Thank you. It's great to be with you. I don't think I've had any time in the last two years, really, where it hasn't been incredibly busy. So it's it's good to take some time out and have a chance to have a chat. So thank you for having me. You are very welcome. You are very welcome. I'm glad I could give you that time. Right, Kate, icebreaker questions, because this is where we start all of our podcast interviews. I want to know what is at the top of your bucket list? Oh, well, for the last two summers, we've been planning. Um, my eldest was just about to go to university when COVID hit. Um, and for the last two summers, we've been planning to go to Costa Rica um, as a sort of last big family holiday. Um, and of course, that's been cancelled for the last two years. So top of my bucket list at the moment is to go on holiday with my two daughters, ideally Costa Rica. But actually, I'd settle for anywhere at the moment. I haven't really had a proper break. Um, but yeah, Costa Rica. Costa Rica, definitely. Yeah, I hear you. I, I, I feel like anywhere with some sun right now would probably do the world a good game. <laughs> exactly Um, okay if you could bring back any fashion trend what would it be well to be fair they've never gone away from my wardrobe but I would really like to bring back the wrap dress um they they were such a good staple for anybody who worked in 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 the 80s and 90s and the 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 early noughties quite like to bring them back as a major fashion trend yeah good can't go wrong with a wrap dress can you boots wrap dress party very very forgiving uh pair with boots or heels or flats or trainers um and you can you can you can just adjust it according to how you're feeling during the week it's the perfect work to evening outfit the perfect exactly okay Kate and this might be a little bit like asking you what your favorite child is but I want to know what your favorite restaurant is Oh, that's the difficult one because it changes so much depending on on sort of how I'm feeling and the time of day and and, and what I'm doing. Uh, but during lockdown, my local Korean cafe has been my go to place for for getting uh, a quick fix, some comfort food, uh, and and they've kept me going throughout lockdown. So I'm a big fan of street food. Oh yeah, I love street food. We have a really big street food community in Cambridge, actually, and uh, it's just amazing, isn't it? Like being able to try all those different cuisines in one place, fantastic. It is, it is, and I think I've got kind of a butterfly brain, so so being able to go t- try lots of little things, lots of little samples, and and eat that kind of stuff is is, is great. But but you know, the other thing we did do over the summer. My daughter and I, we went and celebrated the new uh, three Michelin star female chefs that we had in London that were awarded. So, again, I go from street food to high end. Love it. Absolutely love it. OK, Kate, it's unpopular opinion time. I ask everybody that comes on the podcast to share an unpopular opinion with us. Can be humorous, can be serious, whatever it needs to be it has to be your unpopular opinion. Well, I, I did think long and hard about this one because there's so many unpopular opinions I think I could have. But if I'm, I'm sort of talking about the, the biggest one that would, would sort of divide a, a, a lot of people, cats are better than dogs. 
I'm I'm really not a dog person. Oh, okay. That's going to be controversial and split. It's very controversial. And and I'm not going to lie, I've got two dogs, so I am a dog person. But Kate, my dogs are a nightmare at the moment. We've had a (laughs) flea situation this year. I've got a, a very noisy little dachshund who is absolutely filthy. The weather is disgusting. You have to go out with them all the time. Cats are sounding more and more appealing to me by the day cats are, cats are are sort of neat clean undemanding they're not as problematic as dogs I always think dogs you, you feel as though you've got another kid in the house um I, it, I mean my my unpopular opinion is based on the fact that that I did have a nasty encounter with a dog when I was little so I am quite scared of them but but uh yeah dogs dogs are not as good as cats all right. Well, let's let's see what our listeners think. I, I'm not going to lie, because it's the time of year. I'm swaying towards swaying towards cat coke. Yeah, you might have uh, you might have <laughs> you might have changed my opinion there. <laughs> Who knows? Um, listen, uh, thank you again for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. I mean, I'd be like super gobsmacked if if anybody that's listening to this podcast episode doesn't know who you are. But just give us a little brief overview of what your role is at the moment uh, just to explain how how critical um it has been over the past couple of years yeah so so um i'm currently chief executive at uk hospitality that's the national trade body that represents hospitality operators and businesses and and employers um and so we have 700 member companies between them they operate just over a hundred thousand outlets across the uk from a single site pub coffee shop cafe restaurant park bar Um, hotel, holiday accommodation, right the way through to the national chains. Our role as the trade body is to be the voice and face of the industry, to promote the sector as a great place to grow, work and invest, to engage with government, to make sure we've got the most supportive regulatory and tax environment within which businesses can thrive and survive. Um, And then to provide insight, advice and guidance to our members on the way in which they can operate to be compliant and to help their businesses grow. And so normally that's quite a broad based role, but it, it was really front and centre as soon as COVID hit, because clearly we've got inbound uh, tourism. We've got uh, hotels that were hit first. City centre restaurants, pubs and bars started to feel the effects of COVID back in February. And really since February, I mean, my first meeting on COVID with the government was 28th of January Uh, last year and since then it's been pretty full-on making sure that in real time we can present the views concerns um, impact of covid on our business sector and try and make sure that we get the support needed to to sustain those businesses to maintain the employment to to protect jobs within the industry when we've been so hard hit by covid Um, so really a, a big role with government meeting government ministers and officials you know, two, three, four times a week at the height of the crisis and also being on the media to try and explain what the impact is of what appear to be relatively small scale changes, what big impact that can have on business viability and really spelling it out to make sure that people understand what that means potentially longer term in terms of uh, viable businesses, the economy, employment in the UK. And you, like I said, you have been the spokesperson for the sector throughout the pandemic. And I have to say, Kate, you were in my kind of top five uh, Twitter accounts that I followed continuously throughout. So I I had Kate, I had Bernard Donoghue, I had Alva, 
Asva and Blue Loop. And that was that was my top five to find out, you know, what the hell was going on in the sectors that we worked in. So thank you so much for sharing and and for doing that role. So what I want to talk about today is is about, uh, you know, attracting and retaining talent within the attractions and, and hospitality sectors. But I, I guess, you know, from a I don't run an attraction. I work with them. I, I'm a, an, a, an associate to that sector. So I guess I, I kind of want to ask a couple of questions about general public and what we can do right now. So uh, we, we have a situation in our local town. I, I live in a, in, in a town called Saffron Walden, just outside Cambridge. Beautiful town, market town, lots of lovely pubs. One of my favourite pubs, which is a, a number, a, a one of a chain, has had to close for, for a couple, a good couple of months now. And essentially it closed because some of its, its other restaurants were so overwhelmed and so busy, but so short staffed that they had to redistribute staff from our pub to, to their pubs. And I guess, you know, that's happening in a lot of different places as well. So if, if we're unable to book a table because the venue is short staffed, what can we as the general public do right now to support the sector? Well, I think it does highlight a really uh, challenge that the industry has got. It, it's it's more acute in certain parts of the country. But, you know, up until Omicron hit uh, and we were all going back eating and drinking out more regularly, the, the industry as a whole just did not have sufficient labour to be able to operate at full strength. So a quarter of our businesses in the same situation as the one you just described, uh, saying that they were having to restrict hours, cut covers, Uh, not open for certain days of the week, turn away bookings simply because they didn't have the staff. So I think as as the general public, what we can do with those businesses is is try and be a bit more creative in supporting them. Um, Is there a different time that we can book? Because everybody tries to book dinner or lunch at the same time. Can we spread it out a little bit throughout the day? Can we look at, you know, going for early suppers or late suppers or, or sort of brunches or afternoons? If we can't, uh, then can we help them in other ways? Uh, If they're still doing takeaway, if they're still doing delivery, we can support our businesses in that way. Or booking ahead in advance and making sure that um, we we sort of take out gift cards and and those kind of creative solutions some of our business done where you can can sort of get cash through the tills and, and book two or three meals in advance. So that's a sort of main bit of support. The second thing is that um, if you do have a booking, and your plans change and you can't make it, let them know, let them know in insufficient time because we still are getting quite a lot of no-shows that people make these bookings, something changes, our plans always change, we do know that, um, but people aren't letting them know. And particularly at the moment when you've got larger scale bookings for Christmas, people will have bought that food in well in advance and will start cooking it well in advance. So you do need to let them know the day before or at least a couple of good couple of hours before if you can't make your booking and then they can pass it on to somebody on a waiting list. And that actually leads on to another question is, is how is the sector feeling right now? So with Omicron, with the Christmas rush, what's the general mood like in the hospitality sector at the moment? Are we seeing a lot of people booking, uh, you know, cancelling reservations that they have for large groups of people? Is it is it quiet than it quieter than it should be? quieter than it would be at a normal Christmas so so even before we had Omicron we knew that we weren't having the same level of bookings as we were seeing Christmas 2019 and and previously Uh, so so trade is down we have seen cancellations they're running at about 10% at the moment and we have seen a downturn in footfall over the last week not just for those bookings and, and sort of corporate events Christmas parties Christmas socials 
but just a more general decline in walk-in bookings and, and walk-in activity. So we are seeing revenues down over the course of the last week, 15, 20%. And that's as a result of the uncertainty. There's a high degree of nervousness within the industry uh, and a great degree of fear at the moment because we've all been in this situation before. Mm. Sadly, this time last year, people will have, have invested heavily to be able to, to open and operate at Christmas. And unless you get that Christmas trade in, it's, it can be very damaging to the businesses. They rely on having a good December in order to get them through the quieter months of January to March. Um, and without that good December, the, you know, there are many businesses that will undoubtedly go to the walls. So what should be a very optimistic and hopeful time has in the space of a week turned to be very uncertain and, and very concerning. Okay, so look, some great advice there from Kate. If we can look at when you're booking, changing times, if you can look at supporting um, your local restaurants by booking gift vouchers, for example, or if they are doing takeaway, please do do that. And let's let's try and get them through this this really difficult period that we're seeing. Now, Kate, as I said, I want to talk about attracting and retaining talent in the visitor attraction sector. I don't run an attraction. So what I what I did what I thought was a good idea is to ask some of the past guests that have been on to ask me to ask you questions. And I've had some fantastic questions in from um, from many of the of the different guests that we've had on. So let me just ask you a few of the things that have come in. Gordon Morrison, the CEO of ASVA and Adam Goymore, Park Director at Raw Dinosaur Adventure, actually had really, really similar questions. So let me read out what, what Gordon wrote over because it's, he puts it far more eloquently than I ever could. So Gordon says staff are the beating heart of every tourism business and can undoubtedly make the visitor experience memorable, both positively and negatively. As we face up to what is quite possibly the most difficult recruitment and retention environment in the tourism industry has ever seen. Is it right that we should continue to rely on our people so heavily to deliver outstanding experiences? And if so, how do we ensure that our businesses are attractive and how do we keep that top talent in the industry? I think this is the number one issue that, that all operators are grappling with at the moment as we come out and we've got uh, a very tight labour market um, and we've got a, a real battle just to get staff in, ne- never mind the sort of battle for talent that we had going into COVID. So, so we were already facing those challenges. I do think what we need to do is to use COVID as a reset moment um, and, and look again at our ways of working, style of working, what we're expecting of people. This gives us an opportunity to, to revise terms and conditions and, and to look again at, at hours of work in the sector to make sure that we are being as flexible as we possibly can and we are being as responsive as we possibly can to, to what uh, new recruits are telling us because we've got lots of new younger people coming into the industry many have had no experience before and are questioning quite rightly some of the ways that we do things so particularly in food and beverages and things like that less so in attractions but you know you do get some antisocial hours you do get double shifts people have different ways of paying people and I think you know that the the labour scheduling and the flexibility that we can provide should be a, a positive rather than it being something that holds us back so I do think we can look again at making sure that we are as attractive as we possibly can be and that we've got our best foot forward. I think secondly, what we need to be doing as an industry is to look after the sector's employer brand. Individual businesses very good at doing this, promoting themselves as a career of choice. But we want to get across the the fact that we're a career 
and we have a, a great plethora of, of opportunities available to people if they come and work within our businesses. Because we're an industry largely of small and independent businesses, we, we don't have the size and scale, but I think we can look again at, at the sector branding to be able to make sure we put the best foot forward, that we uh, describe how, how important it is as a career, how meritocratic it is, because there's no sector like ours that provides young with where you can come in with limited experience limited qualifications and skills we will upskill you very rapidly and you can move into management within about two years there's there's no other sector will give you that level of responsibility and authority at such a young age and at such a low level within the business and the pay and salary that goes alongside it so I think that there's more we can do around that in terms of communicating career of choice and also communicating that even if you want to come with us for a short time we will equip you with common transferable skills that other employers will find valuable you know, business, finance, people management, leadership, conflict management. You get that by working it in hospitality businesses and visitor economy businesses, again, at a very low entry level. And these are soft skills, people skills that are, that are valuable at all levels. And then the final element is about making sure that we do invest in our people, that we do train them, provide continuous professional development, skill them, and we invest in leadership and management as people go through. We're very good at taking people at entry level and sort of doing the immediate skills and training they need to be able to function. We need to look at how we can continue to invest in those people. That's what young people particularly are looking for from careers and, and employers now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's really interesting what you said about the soft skills as well, because I think that one of the best starts that I ever had to my kind of working career was working in hospitality and in retail because it gave me so much experience of of understanding how to to talk to people how to communicate with people and from that kind of customer service perspective as well I just I think it gave me such a good like grounding in my career and all of those skills I learned then I've taken through into what I do now in terms of you know sales and, and and an account management role. Absolutely. And and if you think about some of the young people who've been most affected by COVID and and had their their schooling disrupted, their social lives disrupted for a couple of years, those are the skills that they are lacking when, when teachers are talking about young people coming back into school. It's, it's time management, it's personnel skills, it's social skills, it's communication. That's what they get from us. Yeah, yeah, completely, completely agree. Mark Ellis, from the, uh, who's in the interim lead at the National Memorial Arboretum, actually has asked a question that picks up on some of your earlier points there. Um, He says that one of the outcomes of the industry-wide staffing shortage is that staff are able to negotiate a better work-life balance, which is is a really good thing. Ultimately, that is going to lead to better conditions throughout the industry, hopefully more job satisfaction, higher standards and a better customer experience. Mark asks, do you think that we will see the appearance of some widely accepted examples of best practice? So things like how businesses will manage seasonal contracts or flexible hours or unsociable hours, like you mentioned. Yes, I I think we will start to see that evolving as we go further forward. um, uh, And as we come out of this, I think that's what I mean by a sort of COVID reset moment that we can look again at the ways that we've done things uh, to be able to offer that kind of attractive proposition to people. So moving away from some of the zero hours contracts, moving away from some of the, the sort of seasonal changes where people don't have that much certainty and and towards one that is focused on what the applicant is looking for and wanting and the flexibility that they're needing and presenting it in a way which is appealing to them. Um, I think we will, if we work carefully at it, I think there's a great opportunity for us across 
the entire sector to pick up some of those really good case studies and examples and promote them and push them out around the sector so that we have a positive employability story to tell. That is great. Now, I'm going to pick up on that a little bit later on because we've had a really good question about that very about that very topic. Um, let me ask you about the supply chain, though. And th- again, this is another question from from Mark at the Royal, uh, the National um, Memorial Arboretum. So the supply chain at the moment is disrupted. Food costs are increasing. We all need to find a more sustainable way to feed humanity. What can we do as an industry? And this is the, the attraction industry to help the public recognise that hospitality outlets that source locally use seasonal ingredients, uh, increase their plant-based options, they are the best place to respond to these pressures. But at the same time, costs are going to rise through dual pressure of food and wage increases. Well, I think this is going to be a collective challenge for all of us because we it's inevitable that with the cost pressures that we've got that are building across the sector and not just our sector, but across the economy, um, prices are going to have to go up to consumers, irrespective of, of what we're talking about in terms of local sourcing, etc., um, and the positive benefits we've got. So I think as an industry, we're going to have to work to be able to communicate to, to consumers clearly why we are having to put prices up post-pandemic. And it is going to be a struggle and a challenge. And there's going to be that juggling act, which there always is around pricing decisions about um, how far you can you can push prices onto consumers before you, you turn off demand. But with VAT alone going up, there is going to have to be a price increase that we are going to have to pass on. So I think that's one challenge that we need to look at separately. I think the advantage is it's going to be across the economy as a whole and we're not going to be doing it in isolation. So I think customers are going to get more used to hearing about prices and hearing about costs coming through. And then I think, you know, yeah, you're right. There is a a real opportunity there for for, uh, turning that conversation around and explaining about how local sourcing is more beneficial, meets the broader sustainability issues that consumers are increasingly concerned about, not just consumers, potential employees. So sustainability and and environmental and social governance issues are coming higher up the agenda when we're talking about recruitment and putting ourselves out as an attractive proposition. People are looking for authentic stories about local sourcing, local supply chain, uh, carbon net zero, limiting uh, waste, all of those kind of positive issues that we can turn to our advantage. But I do think customers understand it doesn't come cost free. So I think they are two sides of the same coin. I, I don't think I don't think we should be apologetic about the fact that we need to be able to invest in good quality produce in order to deliver a more sustainable food supply chain. Do you think those conversations are slightly easier to have now as well since the pandemic? Because I think, you know, what we did see when when attractions were able to open up and hospitality uh, were open to, able to open up is that we saw a huge increase in demand for things that were local you know we wanted to understand more about our local environment we wanted to be able to you know support our local independence so do you think that you know that's going to be an easier conversation to have now that we're kind of in that mindset already I think so. I think COVID provides us with that opportunity. Certainly one of the the, the strong trends, and it sees no sign of abating as we come out of COVID. Um, localism and, and hyper-localism was a trend we saw during lockdown when inevitably, if you can't travel, you, you explore in your neighbourhood. But even as we reopened, people were exploring in their locality before they got confident enough to go further across the country or into city centres. And clearly you're moving away from global travel uh, for, for two years again those are trends that become sticky with consumers and and consumers are in 
interested in hearing and exploring it more. So I think neighbourhood is going to stick with us for a lot longer, certainly as well in, in terms of the different ways in which we work. I don't think it's going to be as, as polarised as in the office or at home. But I do think you're going to be working remotely and people are going to be looking at sort of neighbourhood and local options to be able to, to facilitate that. Um, so, so I do think that that frees up the conversation to be had more generally about how we are making a, a more sustainable, more robust, more resilient supply chain by looking locally. Um, but equally, that doesn't come cost free. Absolutely. Let's talk about uh, opening hours. So Mark had a, a really good question around that. So he says... Over the last few months, as venues have reopened, we've seen many places change their opening hours, and that's to enable them to offer fair shifts for their staff in response to business needs. He actually says some, some are open fewer days each week and some are closing earlier. The, the, the micro pub and brew pub and tap house that he tends to frequent, um, he does put in brackets here, on an all too infrequent basis, though, nights out are a rare treat. Um, but they're all offering a brilliant experience with great staff du- um, during their opening hours. Does Kate think that the public will learn to understand that not open all hours is a new thing to be embraced? Or do you think that pressure to increase venues to go back to 11 to 11 will be the norm? I think it's probably too early to say yet with with consumers and consumer habits and trends, because I don't think people are going out in the same way that they were yet. Um, What we have seen after this reopening post the 19th of July that there is an expectation from consumers to go back to normal and they're not very forgiving of those who who aren't. So I think consumers during COVID have got used to having things when they want it at the time that they want it and and rapidly. Um, And they don't take kindly to things not being available for them. So I suspect it will be more challenging to have that in a longer term uh, basis if, if that's a longer way of of working. Um, What we do know, however, is that what consumers really don't like is uncertainty. So if they can guarantee that you are always open for these particular days, these particular hours, they will understand that more readily than they turn up at your door and you're not open today because you can't get the staff. That's the bit that that seems to create the disconnect. And what we don't have yet is, is a loyal customer base back. So if they can't get it from you, they will go and find it somewhere else is what we're seeing very rapidly. So I don't think it means that everybody has to go back to 11 to 11, seven days a week and and full service. But you do need to get back to some consistency and some standardization for for customers. Um, and, And certainly... What we're finding in the restaurant side, for example, uh, quite a lot of businesses in city centres are closing Monday and Tuesday. And that causes a degree of confusion for consumers when they're back out. Now, having said that, our customer habits are going to change a little bit again over Christmas if we do have restrictions brought back in due to Omicron. uh, And and therefore, customers, again, will be adapting to changes and the ways that they're doing things and changes in the ways of working. But I do think that will depend on where you are located. If you are located in a city centre and people are not visiting the city centre as regularly you need to have that certainty about when you are available and open that matches and meets with them if you are in a local neighbourhood and and a a local area and and you're you're sort of part of the community I think there will be increasing pressure back being available when the customers want you earlier in this 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 question you mentioned that it's it is actually it's too early to tell because we're not seeing the demand we're not seeing people going out as frequently as they were it's a difficult question but I mean how long do you think that we need to leave it until we do start to see some data around that 
again, I think that's difficult to be able to work out because of the uncertainties of new variants and changes in restrictions. We haven't had a sort of clear, consistent period where we've been able to trade normally. Um, you know, had we not had Omicron coming along, I think we would have got a, a better feel for it after Christmas. We would have been able to look back at sort of, you know, five, six months where we could see what customers were doing, how confident they were and could try and see trading was doing without the, the blips that were caused by supply chain shortages, delivery shortages, pandemics, labour shortages across our industry. Um, I, I suspect that it's going to be until the middle of next year before you can really start to plan with any certainty around what's stuck, what's a long term trend uh, and what's something that you're nudging consumer behaviour around. Thank you. You mentioned earlier about sharing best practices, and and we've had a great question from Hannah Monteverdi, who's the part manager at Wildwood in in Cheshire. So Hannah says, it's not always feasible to be able to offer an increased salary or market-leading benefits. She'd be really interested to know of any examples of curveball ideas that have attracted staff recently. You know, do you have any case studies or examples of attractions that you feel have really bucked the trend for recruitment particularly well? Um... I think the ones that are doing interesting stuff around uh, flexible hours, hours when you want it, more frequent pay. So, so you know, one of the things that, that we found across our sector was that people were getting paid sort of after four weeks, six weeks in some cases when they were a new starter compared to some of the newer um, startup companies and, and, and labor scheduling companies and uh, temporary recruitment from Amazon where they were getting paid within the week so as soon as they did a shift they were getting paid and actually that was something that people found was was really attractive that as soon as they'd done their job they were getting their pay almost immediately so a return almost back to weekly pay packets was quite an interesting one it's not necessarily creative or curveball but it's just listening to what people were saying that um, was a frustration for them that they wanted to be able to have um you know, food, uniforms, selling those kind of benefits, the the walking to work for anybody who's in a local attraction or, or um, uh, provision of sort of transport for those people who are sort of off the beaten track and, and people relying upon uh, cars, etc. Um, those are things that have been used quite creatively. And then flexible labour scheduling, giving people the ability to tell the employer when they were available to work and how many how how many hours they had rather than getting that rotor coming down on a fixed basis saying this is when we've rotored you and you have to go away and, and work out somebody else to swap with if if it coincides with your yoga class or your your student lesson or a gp's appointment so i think putting more power in the hands of the employees and giving them the ability to be able to 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 ask what for what they want when they want hours and pay those are the two creative ones i've seen most recently uh, that's fascinating so the i mean the crux of it is flexibility ultimate flexibility as yeah. the as the employee uh, that is such a simple change to be paid weekly so that instant gratification you know I've done a really good job I've been paid for it what a simple change to be able to make that that could make such a big difference yeah and there's technology that enables you to do it now so you know on the labor scheduling front in terms of I'm available for these hours and I'd like some some work you know stint provides the opportunity and there's labor scheduling that, that provides the opportunity to do that to just sort of log on and say I can do four hours 
um, rather than I could do a full day. And, and that sometimes is, is better. And equally, there's there's technology that allows you to draw down. So if the business still wants to keep a, a monthly salary payroll, you can draw down earlier ahead of your salary. So you just get it a bit more when, when you've been doing your work particularly relevant for young people coming into the sector yeah absolutely and hopefully retaining them for a little bit longer because that is the challenge with the sector is that it has always been seen as a bit of a stopgap hasn't it and and ideally it we has. want to and in some respects we shouldn't be apologetic for that because you know it it is a, a good first job it's it's a good first base transferable skills that we talked about before we obviously want to keep and capture those people who want to use it as a career but equally given the labor shortages we're facing if we can keep those people with us for longer who are just looking at it as a stopgap that's all to the good as well and that's about making sure we invest in them and make sure that they're supported as they come into to the to the company um, because at the moment churn is so high across the sector as a whole people come in find that the work's too busy too de- demanding not for them and they go away again so let's just support them nurture them and and try and help to make sure that they have as good an experience as they can while they're with us definitely Final question for you from our attractions uh, audience. And again, this is from Hannah. So Hannah asks, do we have any realistic idea of timescales in terms of a forecast for recovery? And this is specifically around uh, the, the recruitment challenges that we're having at the moment. She asks, is this something that we have to adapt and change to live with in the long term? Or is it something that we could potentially predict will slowly improve and recover back to a pre-Brexit and pre-COVID-19 scenario? Gosh, um, there's two factors to that, particularly if we're talking about labour markets. So um, the government commissioned independent research to look at when domestic tourism footfall and revenues would recover to to post pre-pandemic levels. And I suppose that's the best indicator of when do you think demand is going to get up there? When do you think your money is going to come back? And the independent forecast suggested that domestic tourism revenues would would recover by the end of 2023 and into national that's not until 2024 now the government has said it will work with the industry to try and bring that forward a year but that still looks as though you're going to have most of 2022 uh when you are operating suboptimally that you're not operating at full demand and i think in terms of labor shortages and and challenges uh, again likely to be temporary but let's not forget that pre-covid we had a five percent vacancy rate post-covid it's ten percent so it was a tight labor market before we went into the covid crisis um how temporary is temporary i think you're going to be living with cost price inflation uh, and uh the the disruption to the supply chain for at least six months 2022 and I think the labor issues are going to be with us uh, probably for a year or two if you look at invest if nothing else changes our biggest challenge for getting people back into work is twofold one one is we've got a hiatus in the talent pipeline where we haven't been able to train our own our apprentices haven't been able to go through people and vocational training haven't been able to go through catering colleges etc haven't been able to go through because people have been disrupted in education and the same goes at the higher levels for hospitality degrees but also you know curated jobs and and, and those kind of vocational training 
skilled jobs that in the sector. So you've got a two-year talent hiatus, talent pipeline hiatus, and you've got COVID travel restrictions that are preventing people from moving globally. And you can only see what's happened with Omicron to see that that's going to be with us probably for at least another year. So you are going to have a global disrupted uh, labour market and you're going to have global disrupted supply chains for at least another year. Gosh, another year of this. Sorry. Weren't we saying this last last year? <laughs> we were yeah, I don't I don't mean that we're going to be having another year of COVID restrictions or the challenges that we've got, but I think the global supply chain, the global economy is still going to be in quite an uncertain uh, state for the whole of 2022. And people certainly won't be moving around the globe as freely as they have been pre-pandemic. We're not going to get back to that sort of free movement. It's nothing to do with Brexit, but just that movement of people isn't going to be happening to the same degree. Hence, you've got a delay in in domestic and and international recovery you've got a delay in international recovery the people who've moved abroad during covid or people who would normally be coming into the uk to look for work or those with settled status who might be returning they're not moving around because of covid and they're not moving around because of the the problems of international travel hey thank you um Thank you so much for answering the questions today. It's been incredible to have you on. I'd like to end the podcast the way that I always end the podcast, which is to ask you um, about a book that you could recommend to our listeners. It might be something that you love, uh, might be something that's helped your career in some way or helped shape your career in some way. What would you recommend for us today? Well, I am a voracious reader, so I I usually have three or four books on the go at at any one time, but I am definitely a fiction reader. Um, so, so I, I've got I've got two books. One that was really um, uh, is a business book that that I found really quite useful when I first uh, was made chief executive about six seven years ago, and that was Shelley Sandberg's um, Lean In, which I would definitely recommend for for any female leaders in the industry to to look at. It talks about um, some of the different ways that, that people experience things at work and, and sort of certainly helped me to, to think about how I wanted to support the next generation of women coming up and making sure that we had more female representation on boards. Um, and then my absolute favourite book, which I is my go-to book at any time that I just want a little bit of escapism um, and a really good story is Wuthering Heights. Uh, so, you know, ha- however bad you're feeling, there's, there's always something entertaining and enjoyable in, in getting lost in somebody else's story and that's that's my recommended uh read fantastic recommendations i actually do remember uh on twitter you tweeting photos of your book pile that your your covid yes. book pile they were huge <laughs> yeah but because because everybody knows i'm a reader and i read an awful lot at christmas i get big that, that's what everybody buys me as a gift so i always get quite a lot of books at christmas and last christmas i got 20 and as we went into lockdown of January, I thought, right, uh, Ryan, can I can I complete my reading pile before we come out of lockdown? Actually, I had to go and buy uh, another 30 books. Uh, by the time we came out of lockdown on the 19th of July, I had read uh, 56 books. Oh, my goodness. 56 books. Well, I guess books are a much better option than getting socks for Christmas, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so, yes, I, I do have. I do have big piles. I still have piles of books all over the house that, that I'm still reading. Um, but yeah, I, I usually have, I've finished three books a week. 
Oh, I love that. Well, listen, if you uh, listeners, if you want to rent a copy of Kate's books, um, you know what you, you know what to do. Go over to this podcast announcement on Twitter, retweet the announcement with the words I want Kate's books and you might well be in with a chance of winning them. Kate, thank you once again for coming on the podcast today. Very, very grateful that you've been able to spare us some time to come on and chat. And I very much hope that you get that well-deserved rest uh, and holiday to Costa Rica sometime very soon. Thank you so much. Been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Skip the Queue. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find us. And remember to follow us on Twitter for your chance to win the books that have been mentioned. Skip the Queue is brought to you by Rubber Cheese, a digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for attractions that helps them increase their visitor numbers. You can find show notes and transcriptions from this episode and more over on our website, rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast.